Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916 to the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. We are back with part three. Welcome to the J. David Markham interview, part three. In this part, guys, we round off our analysis. We round off the conversation between Zach Twomley of When Diplomacy Fails and J. David Markham of numerous things, far too many things to count, but above all, where I found him from the Napoleon 101 podcast. I really did have a ball during the course of this conversation. So if you guys had a ball listening to it, Make sure to let us both know what you thought through the usual channels. And a final reminder, check out Napoleon 101. It's one of the benchmarks of conversational history podcasting. And I think it's fair to say, J. David Markham says it himself, but I'm inclined to agree with him. It is the benchmark for Napoleon podcasts, full stop. So make sure you check out Napoleon 101. What's in the box this time though, Zach? And why should I round off my own experience of J. David Markham and Zach Twomley? Well, if you like alternative history, if you like... J. David Markham singing the theme song for Game of Thrones. Yep, that actually happens. Then stick around for that. But we also ask more important questions. Who the best ally of Napoleon was with a surprise answer. If we think that he pushed Europe too far and Europe simply wasn't ready for someone like him. Did anyone in particular betray Napoleon after getting close to him? And how exactly does J. David Markham feel about Talleyrand? If you didn't know, Talleyrand was one of the most important figures in the French state at this point, and he really is an interesting historical figure in his own right, but J. David Markham has some opinions about him, so stick around for those if nothing else. We, of course, round off our analysis by doing our best to kind of assess how important a figure, if we had to measure it, that Napoleon Bonaparte was for our modern world. Should there be a greater awareness of his contribution to our society in general, and what kind of legacy can Napoleon be said to have in the modern era? Let's find out! as I bring you guys to the final part of the J. David Markham interview. 
Thanks so much for listening to us, guys. And make sure to let us both know what you thought through the usual channels. And I think even just there's a lot to be said in just... I mean, in terms of tolerance levels, the 1800s and the French Revolution, which which kind of ushered it in, obviously very groundbreaking. Uh, like, it's easy to forget that it, it was in many ways the Anshan regime still reigned in many places of Europe. And oh, yes. I think purely for the fact that Napoleon was smashing through that just was not acceptable. I mean, the, the thing that really sticks with me, look at the Austrians time and again no matter how many times they were defeated it was almost as though they thought right we're beaten now so give it a few months and we'll be back again we'll see you soon napoleon kind of thing you know <laughs> like it's like they just could not accept that napoleon was here to stay and napoleon was going to basically change everything as they knew it <laughs> okay well i mean it gets back to what i said earlier they couldn't stand the fact that the bourbons had been overthrown Mm. And they were absolutely determined to reestablish the Bourbon throne. If they'd have just let Napoleon be Napoleon uh, and 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 be, stayed allies and friends and trading partners and so on, uh, the history of Europe would be entirely different. But they were absolutely determined to bring Louis the Eighteenth to the throne. End of discussion. Yeah, yeah. I suppose look, we just talked about the Austrians, who were obviously not very good allies of Napoleon, all things considered. But who do you think the best ally of Napoleon was? Well, I mean, you could actually make an argument for the Austrians because they they were at peace with Napoleon for a long period of time. They 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 did support him. They did send soldiers in eighteen twelve and into Russia, but. We all know they they turned on him uh, as eventually as well, even when they still were pretending to be his friend, you know, <laughs> trying to to negotiate peace treaties and so on. So I would I would say, other than maybe a few of the smaller German states in the Confederation of the Rhine that were pretty loyal, but they were, you know, generally speaking, were, were did not have a a, a lot of consequence in, in, militarily and, sure. and economically and so on, but. Uh, my surprise answer. Can you guess my surprise answer? And all you folks at home listening, can you guess? Put <laughs> hit hit the pause button and see if you can guess my surprise answer. <laughs> we'll be right back after these messages. <laughs> <laughs> I well, if I could throw it a lob like a surprise one there, would it be Russia? No, you're not even close. Oh damn. Okay, I was trying to go for the unexpected. <laughs> well, this you don't know unexpected until you hear this one because it's not a country at all. Oh. It's Josephine. Ah. The, the, bill, the army considered Josephine his good luck charm. She was the one who really helped him become who he was and what he was. Yes, she was unfaithful, but after they worked their way through that, they were intensely loyal to each other. She was his good luck talisman. And 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 it was when when she was forced out that things began to go south. Mm. So while that may not be an ally in the sense that most people would think of one, that's my vote for his best ally. Sure. Well, I, I, actually, the question was, in a sense, and actually our follow-up question kind of pursues that. It wasn't even necessarily a country, but also a person. And I think when we talk about, because I like going from the positive to the negative or, or vice versa, <laughs> when, yes. we talk, when we talk about people who betrayed Napoleon, 
on a on a kind of personal friendship level, I mean, I know how you feel about Talleyrand, so perhaps I don't know. Will, will we get into Talleyrand at all? Do you think he even? <laughs> do you think Talleyrand made up for for what he did at the Congress of Vienna? Because they often go on about him being a great diplomatist and everything else, and and getting a better deal for France. But does it still stick in your craw, as they say, about how he kind of flip flopped with Napoleon? I think Napoleon had it right when he called him shit in his silk stocking. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry for the sensibilities. If there's young children out there, you know, plug your ears. But, but no, he, he was terrible. I mean, go back as, as early as, as uh, uh, 98 when, when Napoleon is, is being sent to Egypt. It was partially Napoleon's idea, partly Fouché's idea. Uh, but the whole point of the Egyptian campaign was to essentially remove British influence by removing the rule of the Bays and letting the, the, the Turks reestablish control. This was, in theory, Turkish uh, territory. Sure. You know? And Talleyrand, who was foreign minister, was supposed to inform the Sultan Selim about this. The French are coming there on your behalf. Mm. Oddly enough, Talleyrand seems to have forgotten to send that message. (laughs) So, of course, the Turks send two armies, one by land, one by sea, Mm. and I am the opposite sword of Shabina. And... uh, uh, you know, so Napoleon had to fight two two Turkish armies uh, as as a result, which he should not have had to do. But Talleyrand, and by the way, probably the a lot of members of the Directory as well, you know, in their dream world, Napoleon would have succeeded in establishing French control there, and been killed in the process because wow. they because they saw him as a very very ambitious. General, when he came back from from the ninety six ninety seven campaign in in, in 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 Italy and was greeted by throngs in the streets and so forth and so on, it was very clear. To, and after what he had he'd done with the Cisalpine Republic, etc., you know, he taking a lot of initiative that the general would not normally take. You know, a lot of a lot of the directory and, and Talleyrand certainly saw him as a as a threat to their uh, security, and, and rightfully so. You cannot mention people who betrayed Napoleon. With also mentioning Fouché, mm. you know the 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 chief of the secret police who who was both a bane and a boon to to <laughs> Napoleon. He certainly provided Napoleon with needed security and, and and information about plots against his life. I mean, but he also was duplicitous. Uh, and uh, you know, one one the best way I know to to describe the two of them together, I forget the writer who 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 wrote this. And I, I should have looked this up, uh, but uh, Talleyrand was introducing uh, Fouché to Louis the Eighteenth, and one writer said it was crime on the arm of vice, something, <laughs> something very, very close to that. You know, I have a friend who who really likes Talleyrand, who who would say that yes, Talleyrand, you know, was always having the interest of France in. Mm. in, in, in Art. But for a long time, their France and Napoleon's interests were the same, and and Talleyrand didn't see it that way. So those are the the two people close to Napoleon who you know certainly betrayed him most. No no question about it. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, I think like it'd just be funny because 
when, having listened, when I listened to Napoleon 101 as I did, and I had very little idea about the kind of domestic situation, and then when I, after hearing your rants about Talleyrand, I was horrified that I was like this absolute villain Talleyrand. I have to, I have to tell people about how bad he was and everything else. And then, of course, you look it up, and yeah, and yeah, there is more to the story, but. I do like the idea of, of finding out more about the people that Napoleon relied upon because, and then when, of course, they promptly turn on him when, when times get tough, but I think it makes Napoleon more human almost when you see yeah. relationships like yeah. that. And there is one more that I really do want to mention, and that's Murat and his wife Caroline, the sister of Napoleon. You know, when when they decide, and it's mostly Caroline, they decide that their interests in Naples and keeping the Austrians at bay are more important uh, than supporting Napoleon, mm. and they turn on him. That that was a real a real low blow coming from within the family, as it were. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know Murat, who can't make up his mind. He was he was a, he was arguably the greatest cavalry leader uh, of the 19th century, uh, and and was 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 very flamboyant and so forth and so on but he wasn't the brightest uh, light in, in 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 the christmas tree you know <laughs> then he 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 tries to to attack austria and that that works out very very poorly and he races to france and sends word to napoleon that he's he's had a change of heart and uh, he 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 wants to come back and serve the emperor by the way one of the mistakes it's not as big and grand is, is the mistake of going into the Peninsula campaign and so on. But mm. one of the mistakes that Napoleon made, and it could have changed history completely, is that Napoleon should have accepted that. Because if he's got Murat with him, you know, leading the cavalry instead of the impetuous Marshal Ney, mm. I mean, Ney was way out of his league at Waterloo, the level of command. He was just not suited for that. Ney was a great cavalry commander, but 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 not not commanding the cavalry. Yeah. Murat would not have made some of the bonehead moves that Ney made at Waterloo. You know, that that could have changed uh, that campaign completely, and with it, who knows, uh, a topic for another podcast sometime. <laughs> yes, what, indeed. What would have, what would have happened uh, if Napoleon had won the Battle of Waterloo? And, and would Murat have made the difference? It's hard to say. There are a lot of different things that went wrong in that battle, uh, wrong from the standpoint of the French, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, so I would add Murat and Caroline to, to the list of villains. Sure. Oh, well, good. It's it's nice to have a, a troop of villains rather than just the one. I think it makes it more kind of more kind of interesting and it, it makes a better story as well, really, doesn't it? Talleyrand does not deserve to be all by himself and have all <laughs> he, he does not deserve to have all of the glory of being the biggest villain. He's got to have company. <laughs> yes, indeed, he does. Yeah. Well, we, we mentioned there are what ifs like there's a lot of what ifs going on oh. at this point. Oh, sure. And I think it's it's difficult in a way to kind of pin even one in particular down. But you touched briefly there on Waterloo and kind of what might have been had Napoleon won. Sure. And I know this is almost dropping it upon you in a way, but I, I'd often wondered exactly how much of a difference it would have made because of the fact, like the thing that always struck me was when Napoleon came back after the 100 days, the 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 coalition, as it were, didn't declare war in France. They declared war on the person of Napoleon. Yes, because, they made him an international outlaw. Yes, they did. And to me, that kind of says a lot. Do you think 
after Waterloo, say the French had won, say it had been a decisive victory even, do you think Napoleon would have been allowed to stay? Well, that's, that's a good question, and I've done roundtables on this. It's a, there, there are two basic points of view on this. Mm. One, and I think most historians probably take this view, and it's completely defensible. Okay, so you rout the Prussians, and they slink back to the east, you know, after being wiped out at Ligny. Although they still have a fresh division out there in the woods, so they're, you know, they're not all tired and beaten. Sure. Uh, you rout the the British slash other army because he had a lot of non-British soldiers there at Waterloo, as he grumbled about, and and you send them packing, maybe even not just beyond Brussels, maybe even they are packed back to Great Britain. Well. You still have the Austrians and the Russians moving forward. Mm. The two defeated armies can regroup. And when the Austrians and especially the Russians, who of course have the furthest to go, are nearing the borders of France, a rested and reorganized Prussian army can can join them, probably join them just north of the Russians. And the British can come back across the uh, the, the, the channel. And now Napoleon, while he may have rallied his country somewhat and he's had a chance to rally his troops and and good old Grouchy will finally rejoin the fold, you know, and and, and so on with his 33,000 rather well-rested soldiers, then, you know, in spite of that, Napoleon's going to be pretty heavily outnumbered and they're going to be fighting on French soil and the French aren't going to be very happy about it. Sure. That's probably the predominant belief, but I don't think it's necessarily the case. You can make an equally compelling argument, I believe, that, okay, the scenario is the Prussians are licking their wounds, you know, <laughs> quite quite far to the east at Narmour or wherever they were heading. Uh, the, the British are across the, the channel again, licking their wounds. And there's going to be some political consequences, possibly, you know, the, the there's a big pro-French uh, contingent in, in the British government. And, and uh, you know, the British government may really say, you know, let's let those damned Europeans, the continental Europeans settle things. We'll <laughs> we'll pull our own Brexit right here and now. You know? I mean, that's a that's a possibility. But even if that doesn't happen. It may not matter because, first of all, Napoleon can send messengers or letters or whatever to to you know uh, uh, the Emperor of Austria, my dear father-in-law. Mm. We were allies and friends for so long. Your grandson is the heir to my throne. <laughs> Your daughter is the empress. Please, let's become friends again, and I may even after a time allow – I may retire and allow your daughter to run the government as regent until your grandson is old enough to become emperor. Uh-huh. Okay, so that's an offer that's going to be a little tough to to ignore, or even if he just says, I'm tired of war. I will promise to stay inside the boundaries of France as they now exist. You can monitor me, and if I 
break out and do something wrong, you'll be fully justified to take action. But give me the chance to prove that I just want to run France, which I think at this point is all he'd really want to do. I think he'd be quite content to do that because, remember, he was a great reformer. He was a great administrator. Now he goes to Tsar Alexander. My dear cousin, we were friends for so long. Do you remember our embrace at Tilsit? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Do you remember how satisfying it was for us to be friends and to cooperate? Let's do it again. Is, <laughs> is it really worth the lives of maybe tens of thousands of Russian and Austrian soldiers to simply help perfidious England, who, <laughs> you know, who who only wants to make money for their business community, uh, you know, why should continental Europeans die for for King George? Yeah, let us make our natural political, military, and trading alliance between France, Austria, and Russia. And at that point, Prussia would almost certainly capitulate and, and join in because they're not going to go on their own, even if the British do show up. We will have a grand coalition, you know, when the Confederation countries and so forth and Belgium. So we will – we can all get along together. My armies will stay in France. I will run France you can run your countries, but we can have a level of cooperation and collaboration that we've never seen before. And at that point, what's what's Great Britain going to do? They they've almost never really been willing to send a major army, you know, all the Peninsular Campaign, and then and then at Waterloo, you know, that's been it. They're not going to mm. send an army all by themselves. That didn't work out when they invaded the Netherlands, you know. So so uh, they're likely to. Either just sit there and, and be in a huff or maybe try to engage in, 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 in trade as well. No continental system at this point. No one's trying to destroy the other. No trade war. And well, Great Britain, but all of Europe would have been so much better off with that scenario mm. than with the scenario of war continuing and more people being being killed and more recriminations and who knows against all laws napoleon might have won that second round after waterloo as well he 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 was a military genius he maybe he was getting older he he didn't show his flashes of genius at waterloo uh that he had certainly not at austerlitz and elsewhere uh but that that it could have come back too sure yeah there's a lot to be said for almost taking for granted the idea that France was kind of going to be defeated. So if we take if we if we take that out of the equation for a sec and if we look at like you said the diplomatic options that Napoleon had which in many ways were quite appealing and they were quite promising 
mostly because of the familial ties and the relationship ties he had made. There, like I think Napoleon could have really made a lot of made a lot for himself there, especially yeah. if he had the likes of I know bringing him up again, but if he had the likes of Talleyrand on hand to diplomatically help him i think that would that would really help things forward but i think a lot of what it comes down to as well is britain really because britain continued on these coalitions almost despite every despite all common sense it seemed at times yeah they financed a, a lot of them yeah and now now to be fair napoleon's tried diplomacy he tried diplomacy when he was in moscow he 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 sent pleas for negotiations let's let's not continue this madness let's i've, I've come to moscow you, you know i'm powerful but i still want to be your friend and 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 they were they were returned unanswered that's one reason he stayed too long in moscow he kept hoping that that, that Alexander would actually, uh, mm. you know, come to the negotiating table, and 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 of course Alexander never did. Uh, when Napoleon returned for the Hundred Days, he he sent dispatches just along the lines that that I had said, uh, and uh, they they were unanswered. They, the 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 Allies were having none of it. But Napoleon had not just won a major victory against two of the four major Allies. If he in this scenario, if he if he slaughters them at Waterloo, dispatches each of them, you know, off off in in, in blooded condition, now the equation maybe has changed because oh my God, Napoleon is back and and he still has it. He just yeah. defeated he just defeated half of our combined four four nation coalition. Mm. Maybe we should do a little diplomacy. Yeah. You know? It's yeah. hard to say. It is hard, hard to say. To say yeah. But that's that's the beauty of what ifs. You can debate and you can throw it around and you can you can kind of I, I've always been a fan of alternative history and I think there's a lot to be said for it because when you do things like this you actually find yourself exploring different avenues and realizing kind of people that could be important or, or options that maybe you wouldn't otherwise kind of discover if you're just looking at the, the A to B kind of journey that history tended to take back then. So, yeah, I think... Uh, well, it's funny you mentioned that. Ooh. <laughs> As it happens, I it was involved in a book called History Revisited, mm. the, the Great Battles. Eminent historians take on the great works of alternative history. And, and I was uh, the, the editor of, of, the, uh, of the thing. And it's actually on uh, DVD as, as well. And I, I wrote the introduction and I wrote a commentary uh, on one of the uh, alternative history things, which was Napoleon establishing an empire in the United States. Sure. Com- complete with a disastrous invasion of, 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 of Canada, hmm. read uh, Moscow, and also a disastrous invasion of Mexico, read Spain, uh, <laughs> and, and so on. But they have things in here about Nixon. There's, there's, there's two or three uh, – of uh, the uh, of Napoleonic uh, related things, so you know it, it's pretty interesting. And I also did the narration for for the the audio book that that's out. So oh. if, if, you're, if you're into this sort of thing, it's 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 called History Revisited. It came out oh 2000. The recording is 2008. The book may have been 2007. I can't quite reach the book from here with my headphones on, but <laughs> but, but uh, it's quite uh, it's quite worth the read or or the listen. Mm. And you know, I I promote it. I I I'm not I don't I don't I'm not going to get any royalties if you go out and buy the book. You know, it's just but it's 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 great fun. And yeah. they were going to they were going to do another one, and I was going to write 
one of the the alternative histories, and it was probably going to be on Waterloo. Uh, but then, for whatever reason, they decided that then they were no longer going to continue the series. Oh, that's a pity. Well, hopefully, it'll get resurrected in the future because I think they're like. Even in with the fact that alternative history can often hook people in. I was talking to a guy who does a history of, of Westeros podcast and that's the, Oh my. Yeah. And Game of goes, Thrones. Yes, yes indeed, yeah. And he goes into the lore of all it and like obviously there's so much there, but we were talking in that sense about how in many ways his podcast, <clears throat> because of the historical connotations and how it kind of relates to sort of modern day history or like historical pasts in many ways, like George R. R. Martin's kind of universe, if you like, has many kind of uh, parallels mm-hmm. to history you could see. But mm-hmm. our whole our whole uh, idea was that if you are interested in... I'm just giving you some background music from Westeros. The, the theme, the the, the theme. It's so epic. Oh yeah. So anyway, guy, I was not trying to interrupt you. I was trying to be just quiet background music. But go on, go I'm on, please. Sorry, I completely ruined that. That would have been so much better if I hadn't stopped all puzzled like that. Yes. <laughs> Continue what you were saying because it's, it's it's interesting. Yeah, well, I was basically saying along the along the same lines as alternative history being able to hook people in fantasy and like the history of say like lore in a like, what is essentially an imaginary world, which is what Game of Thrones is set in. Yeah, but it it can often have the effect of people look at something that is some way historical. They think this is interesting. I like these characters that George R. R. Martin created, and then they yep. realize that George R. R. Martin has taken lots of inspiration from say the War of the Roses, and they're like, well, maybe I'll like that. And then yes. next thing you know, you've got someone hooked on English history, which is rewarding in itself. Similarly here, someone might not, some it's like an average American citizen might not necessarily be all that interested in Napoleon. But then if you take it and put it like, say, what if Napoleon invaded America? And then they see this book on the shelf. Like, I, like it's, it's almost like I like to compare it to like there was this great explosion in alternative history works at the beginning of the 20th century in Britain all these awful like nightmare scenarios of people invading Britain for whatever reason. And I feel like wherever you go, they'll be very popular. So if someone sees a book uh, depicting some kind of horrendous invasion of America, that you're going to be interested and you'll pick it up and you'll be like, Oh, Napoleon. Okay. And then next thing you know, you'll want to know more about him. And then a leads to B and there you go. I'm always looking about new ways to get people into history. On the, on the other hand, I have droned on now for well over two hours. So (laughs) they have undoubtedly lost all interest in, of any kind in Napoleon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, I think I, I feel like it's only right to kind of ask you a kind of, in many ways, a very broad and unfair question to pose to you, but something that's necessary. One of many. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yes, yes, yes. Well, you you may not have known what you're getting yourself into, but at least you'll know for the future. (laughs) Your questions, even your surprise questions have been very good. Oh, good. That's good to hear. Well, I wanted to ask you kind of how important, if you say you had to measure Napoleon's kind of impact or importance in history uh, in terms of like being a historical figure even for our modern world not necessarily for the time that he lived in but the legacy that he kind of left behind how would you measure that and and that's the first part of the question but the second part is do you think there should be a greater awareness of his contribution to our society and I, in many ways that's an obvious question but i'd just like to hear your kind of slant on it anyway 
Well, the first part and the second part is going to be very easy, but but the, <laughs> the, 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 the the first part, you know, I don't know how you measure as such someone's importance. It's like saying who's the greatest baseball player of all time or who, who who's the best the best ball player, you know, now uh, kind of thing. Well, you know, or, you know, who, who was the best of anything? Uh, you know, wh- which was more important, World War One or World War Two, you know, mm. and so forth, so forth and so on. So you can't you can't measure exactly. I can't say Napoleon was more important than Charlemagne, for example, or Caesar uh, or Alexander, all, all of whom have, you know, extreme importance in history. But I can say he, he was certainly one of the most important. He also was probably the smartest. He was an absolute genius. Uh, I always, you know, tell the story of how he would dictate simultaneously to four different secretaries at once and so forth, you know, <laughs> just an amazing person. But I, I would argue, okay, here, first of all, I think a lot of people, if they really think about it, would see him as the father of the European Union. Mm. No, he, he, other than Charlemagne and Caesar before him, and that was quite a bit before him, Charlemagne, you know, was over a thousand years before him, we, we're talking – the first modern effort to organize Europe as a pseudo, you know, entity. He wrote himself one one system of weights and measurements, okay, the metric <laughs> system, uh, a unified education system. You know, one leader at the top, him, of course, but but uh, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't strictly a European Union kind of thing, although he had a lot of independent states that swore allegiance to him, just like, you know, they today they swear allegiance to, to the, the, the union itself and to and to the government of, of the union to whom they send representatives. So, you know, I would say, and I think a lot of historians would agree, he he was certainly a father of the European Union. He was the father of, of Italian unity. You know, he he created Italian unity out of out of chaos. I remember one year I was in Milan, Milano. I went to the Museo del Risorgimento, the Museum of the of the Resurgence, the Resurgimento, mm. yes, which is. is the the museum dedicated to the 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 bringing together of the Italian state. Yeah, and the first three rooms were all about Napoleon. <laughs> They had wow. they they were saying that they didn't they weren't talking about Caesar and stuff they were talking about Napoleon. Napoleon is the modern beginning of Italian you know unity, and then and then they go on to all, all the others. But but uh, I was I was quite impressed with that, uh, and I saw that elsewhere in Italy as well that there was a real feeling that. Uh, that Napoleon had been a major factor in in getting uh, getting them them unified, and you know there's other things uh, I mentioned it at some length before. I've mentioned lots of things at some length, of course, but but his religious tolerance for promotion of religious tolerance, yeah, yeah, specifically promotion of of of, of independence for Jews. You know, this was certainly before its time, and 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 while especially with the Jews, it it took some, you know, really unfortunate turns in the 20th century. I mm. think he lay, I think he helped lay the foundation, you know, that Europe should be tolerant, uh, and and that uh, no one religion should be allowed to at least officially dominate. You know, sure, Christianity is 
probably always going to be the, the dominant religion in Western Europe, you know, at, at least in, in for, for a number of generations. We'll see how immigration changes that, but, but you know, it, it's likely. But, uh, you know, we're not going to have the Catholic Church as the official religion. Uh, sure. We're not we're not going to have any religion as the official religion, which which what it was in France and and what it was elsewhere. You know, the Catholic Church was the official French religion, mm. and when when there was the concordant, you know, with 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 the Pope, one of the things the Pope asked for was to make that religion to be you know the, the Catholicism to be the main religion. And 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 he did, no, we will recognize it as one of the religions. It will have that status, but it will not be the religion. Mm. And the, the Pope was not happy, but the Pope did, <laughs> did not have a lot of choice in the matter. No, he did not. You know, so the polling was definitely dealing from strength on that one. Mm. So you know, and as should there be greater awareness? Well, duh. You know, <laughs> that's that's why I've written these books. That's why I've been on television. That's why I I taught uh, a lot about Napoleon in, in, in my classes. I had a principal who used to joke that my two-semester world history was one semester on Napoleon and one semester on the rest of world history. That was that was never even remotely true. And sometimes I actually taught more about the French Revolution than, than I taught about Napoleon. But mm. but uh, that's why I do the conferences and, and do the academic journal that I that I produce every year, along with my editor in chief Wayne Hanley, who does just a wonderful job. And uh, that's why I did the Napoleon 101 podcast, and that's why I'm here with you today, because I agree with you and others that, yeah, there needs to be a greater uh, awareness and understanding of the true Napoleon, and podcasts like this one and Napoleon 101 are an important part of that process. Yes, indeed. And I have to say, I really, really appreciate you coming on, and I know my listeners really appreciate hearing from you after well to me it's after all this time because it's been a while since i've listened to napoleon 101 but i hope if they haven't listened to it yet they will go and listen to it now because really it it turned me on to conversational podcasts so i hope it'll imbue them with knowledge too well i hope so i invite them to do so they can wake up now i'm about done (laughs) (laughs) well i'll make sure to to edit out everything that you say so that it's just nice and nice and digestible and re- and relatable and enjoyable <laughs> i'm just kidding i know uh, david thank you so much i had a blast actually i had a really good time well so did i uh time flies we're having fun uh, and uh, i've had i've had i have had i've had, had great fun you know i look forward to to hearing what we've done and and i look forward to maybe coming on your show again sometime i love that thanks a million no promise cheers and that is that the end of the j david markham interview it was really really fun overall i think it's the most fun i've had and i know i say that after every single collaboration but it's really a great example of how great collaborations can be i can't emphasize enough how grateful i am to j david markham for coming on for being so obliging for not running away when i bothered him over and over and over again to come on the show i mean hey i had to I had to put my neck out there. If there was even a chance that I could get him on, I was willing to bother him endlessly until he did come on. But he did come on, and it was great. I really had a great time, and I hope you guys did listening to it as well. Make sure to let us both know what you thought, because we like to know what you thought. Sometimes it's fun to get together and talk about history, but it's especially fun when those that listen to it 
participate in the discussion as well. And who knows? I would love to have J. David Markham on in the future. I would especially love to delve more into alternative history surrounding Napoleon, since it sounds like there's a lot of mileage there, and it also sounds like J. David Markham would love to talk about it. And we, of course, would love to have him on. So this is When Diplomacy Fails. This was the J. David Markham interview, and I really hope you guys enjoyed it. It's my present to you, because When Diplomacy Fails is five years old, and we are running absolutely wild. The party, as I'm sure you've gathered, is still ongoing, so make sure to check your feeds, check your downloads, etc., and make sure you keep taking part in this wonderful party of ours. Thanks again to J. David Markham, and thanks again to you guys for listening. This has been When Diplomacy Fails. My name is Zach, and I will see you all soon. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.